Hello and welcome to the Beach House 34 podcast. I'm your host, Christine Worth, and welcome to 2023. I am so happy to be back and I cannot wait to get to work on all of the different podcasts and stories I'm going to have for you this entire year. However, today, what we're going to talk about is the Maura Murray case. Now, this is a woman who went missing in 2004 and still in 2023 has not been found. This mystery is so big, it's so cluttered, and there's so much misdirection that it's going to be set over a series of podcasts. Now, I know that that's not the usual, MO for Beach House 34, but you'll realize what I mean after this first episode. Now, before we begin talking about all of the details of this case, I want to make it very, very clear that even though Mora's case is now considered a cold case by the state of New Hampshire, it is far from being silenced. What we do know is that at the time that Mora went missing in 2004, she was 21 years old. Now, Mora's sister, Julie, currently maintains an active TikTok account where she answers questions, she gives updates, and addresses some theories. Uh, The family also maintains a website and a Facebook and Twitter account. And additionally, some great work has been done by other podcasters, uh, namely Lance and Tim of The Missing Podcast, who have covered this case extensively and far more in depth than I will hear. And there's also the 107 Degrees podcast by Aaron Larkin. Now, I will have all of these links for you on Instagram. Above all, please remember that there is still a family out there hurting and for nearly 20 years have been trying to find their daughter and sister relentlessly. I have done my best in the time frame that I have to give what details I could find and to give some of the most up-to-date information. Now this case, this is a mystery that will take you down rabbit hole after rabbit hole. And there are plenty of armchair detectives, myself included, that have personally or very publicly theorized on all kinds of scenarios. Now, that being said, the information that I give you today and in the following episodes is based on information that I've garnered from various well-known and reputable sources. And whenever something is considered a theory or a fact, I will make note of it so that you too are aware. I also want to be very transparent here and let you know that by the time you listen to this, some information may have changed, or at least one could hope after all of these years that there would be some kind of clue or answer or even a piece of evidence. Most of all, if you have any information regarding the case, no matter how old or how new or how trivial you may think it is, please contact the New Hampshire Cold Case Unit at 603-223-3648 or by email at coldcaseunit at dos.nh.gov.
there's no doubt you have heard of the Maura Murray case. In the event you haven't, settle yourself in for a mystery that hundreds, if not thousands of people have been trying to solve since Maura's disappearance in 2004. So let's start with what we know. We know that Maura was born on May 4th, 1982, and that at the time of her disappearance, she was 21 years old. She grew up in Hanson, New Hampshire, where, in high school, she was the star of the basketball and track teams, as well as an honor student. As a matter of fact, she broke her high school record for the two-mile run. Now, even though Mora lived with her mom in Hanson, she had a very close relationship with her dad, Fred. Now, Fred coached Mora in sports, and they would often go camping or hiking, and usually they did this in New Hampshire. When Mora graduated high school, she was admitted to West Point, and there she studied chemical engineering. Her sister Julie was already at West Point, so Mora followed her there. They were both on the cross-country and track teams while at West Point, and Julie had said during an interview that while you're attending West Point, you are stressed to the max every minute of every day, not only physically, but mentally as well. When Maura was a freshman at West Point, she met her boyfriend, Billy Rausch. Now, Julie and Maura often talked about Billy, and Julie wasn't a big fan of his. She called Billy a, quote, talker, and he was a little much for Julie, but Maura seemed to really like him. We do know that while Maura was at West Point, she was dismissed from the school for violating their honor code. Now, a West Point classmate of Maura's, Megan, was interviewed during a documentary about Mora, and she said that during a class trip, the students were allowed to do some shopping at a store within Fort Knox. As they walked out, the military police grabbed Mora. Mora had a look of pure desperation on her face. She had stolen a small item, either a lipstick or a bottle of nail polish, Megan couldn't recall, but because it was an honor code violation within West Point, which they take extremely seriously, Mora was found guilty of the crime and given the choice to withdraw from West Point, which she did. Megan later asked Mora why she did it. And Mora said she didn't know she had the money to pay for it. Megan felt like it was very out of character for Mora. Megan also said that it was well known that Mora was bulimic and that one of her older sisters, Julie, could be hard on her and Mora would sometimes get down on herself. Megan also said that she believed that if Mora wanted to disappear into a new life, she could. Megan fully believes that Mora is still alive. Megan further said in another interview that the relative who runs the official Maura Murray Facebook page had told Megan, quote, not to say these horrible things. Watch what you tell people. Now, I don't know how that comes across to you, but to me, kind of sounds like a threat. Now, after leaving West Point, 
uh, Mora, she was only there for three semesters when she was asked to leave. She transferred to the University of Massachusetts, or UMass, in Amherst, Massachusetts, to study nursing. On November 3rd of 2003, and according to author James Renner and documents received from the Amherst, Massachusetts police, while at UMass, Mora was caught using stolen credit card numbers to order food. Another female student had noticed someone had been using her credit card number to order pizza from Pinocchio's Pizza. The student then called the Amherst police, who in turn contacted Pinocchio's. Now, after Pinocchio's checked their records, the managers at Pinocchio's found that the order had been delivered to Mora's dorm room. That same night, after Pinocchio's found out about the issue, Mora called the pizza place again and ordered a pizza. She used the same credit card number as before. This time, the police went with the deliveryman, and when he got to her dorm and she signed the bill, the police showed up. Eventually, Mora did admit to using the credit card number, and she said that she had found the number on a receipt that was in the trash. Now, in my head, a couple of questions are, usually receipts don't have the full number on them. It's just the last four digits. But this is in 2004. Remember when they used to run those credit cards through on manual machines using carbon paper? Um, Now, this would show the whole credit card number. Um, And back then, you didn't need the security code on the back of your card like you do today. And I don't even know if they had security codes back on the credit cards in 2004. So to get this number, one would assume that um, either the whole number was actually printed on a receipt or it was one of those carbon paper receipts, right? Well, the police took Mora out into the hallway and they took a photo of her. Now, it's not a mugshot, though many people refer to it that way, but it is a bit unnerving. Now, if you Google the name Maura Murray, you'll see all kinds of photos of her smiling and happy, but this one picture in particular is in black and white, and it's very grainy. It shows someone, in my opinion, very pissed off, and if looks could kill, this is definitely a snapshot of that definition. It is a stark contrast to her other photos. But the thing is, is that the pizza, it wasn't the only thing that she had charged on the card. There were purchases on different occasions that would make you believe that she was actually ordering food for two people. Now, in one case, the food purchase was for two subs and a salad. Now, Mora, she's five foot seven. She weighs 120 pounds. So this seems like a lot of food for someone her size. But based on the missing podcast and what we heard from her friend earlier and alleged statements made at family gatherings, Mora was bulimic. She was a track and field star and she had to maintain her look. Now, the total charges for all the food on that stolen credit card was under $250. When Mora did appear in front of a judge, the judge told her that if she could stay out of trouble 
for three months, or in other words, until February 2004, they would remove the violation from her record. Now, in another report, it was stated that it was a six-month probation period, which evidently is very common. Now, regardless of whether it was three months or six months, Mora had to keep her hands clean and avoid any further trouble. So let's take a really brief overview on what we have so far. Mora, she's a star athlete. She was a star athlete in high school, and she is very, very smart. So smart, she's accepted to West Point, and she studies, of all things, chemical engineering. Now, while at West Point, she makes a huge mistake, and she is asked to leave the school. So she then enrolls at UMass for nursing. Now, while at UMass, she is caught using a stolen credit card for food and is put on probation. Now, on Thursday, February 5th, 2004, now this is four days before she goes missing, Mora calls her oldest sister, Kathleen, while Mora is on break at her security job checking student IDs on the UMass campus at Melville Hall. Now, currently, Mora is on the dean's list at UMass. As I said, she is very, very smart. Now, another version of this is that it was Kathleen, Mora's sister, who called Mora. And these phone calls happened around 10.20 p.m. And remember, this is Thursday, Thursday night, February 5th. It wasn't unusual at all for the both of them to talk. They did so nearly every day. They were very, very close. Evidently that night, they, meaning Kathleen and Mora, had a conversation about some problems that Kathleen was having with her fiancé and eventual husband, Tim Carpenter. Kathleen, she had a drinking problem and had been in and out of rehab many, many times. This night, Kathleen was upset because she had just been discharged from a rehabilitation clinic, and after being picked up by her fiancé, he took her to a liquor store on the way home, which caused Kathleen to have an emotional breakdown. So that was Thursday. On Friday, February 6th, around 1.20 in the morning, so technically this is a few hours after Mora has had her phone call with her sister. It's all over the same night, but I'm trying to stay as uh, literal as I can. So we're on Friday, the 6th of February. This is about 1.20 in the morning. And remember, this is hours after the phone call with Kathleen. Mora's supervisor, Karen, she came by and she noticed that Mora was very, very upset. As a matter of fact, Mora was so upset she couldn't even talk. Uh, her supervisor, Karen, realized that Mora, she couldn't continue her job. So she escorted Mora back to her dorm room, which was in Kennedy Hall. And this is literally only just a few hundred yards from where she's working at Melville Hall. So Karen asked her what was wrong. But all that Mora responded was, my sister, and then made a motion towards her cell phone. Now, Mora had two sisters, so it's not certain which sister she was referring to at the time. Um, a later interview with Kathleen, and this was years later, uh, she said that she couldn't recall anything in their conversation that would have upset Mora so much. 
Now, Maura's supervisor, Karen, uh, she would later respond to an interview where she said that Maura was basically unresponsive. She was staring blankly at the wall. Uh, Karen even remembers a fellow supervisor telling her that he felt something was up with Maura. When Karen approached Maura that night, uh, when she was so upset, uh, Karen noticed that Maura's cell phone was on her desk. Now, this was unusual because the students were not allowed to use cell phones while they were working. Now, this led many to think that it was a phone call that uh, Mora had made Mora so upset. I mean, her cell phone's there, so that would be the logical conclusion, right? Well, Karen was so worried about Mora that Karen wrote down her own cell phone number and gave it to Mora and then walked Mora back to her dorm room. And she mentioned, Karen mentioned that she didn't want to leave Mora alone. She didn't feel as if she should be left alone. But Maura said that she had a roommate, so she'd be okay. So Karen went ahead and left. Now, the problem was this was a lie. Maura lived by herself. What's interesting is that just a half an hour before this supposed phone call, and we only assume it was a phone call because her phone was on the desk in front of her, a student was involved in a hit-and-run accident. At 12.20 a.m., Petrit Fossi was found lying on the ground. He had been hit by a car, and he had suffered severe head trauma. Now, the driver of the vehicle had fled the scene. And according to an article in the Daily Collegian, Petrit was found on the side of the road at the intersection of Triangle and Mattoon Streets in Amherst. He ended up spending over a month in the hospital in a somewhat coma-like state. He said he could hear people speak to him and he was able to speak back, but only in fragmented sentences. Uh, He couldn't even open his eyes. When doctors asked him how old he was, he thought he was 27, much older than his current age. So there was quite quite significant uh, brain damage. Uh, done when he had this accident. Now, that same year, uh, two other students at UMass had actually been involved in hit and runs as well, and they were left in critical condition. So I'm not exactly sure uh, what was going on with UMass uh, that year, but it was obviously not good at all. Uh, Now, the accident with Petrit was one mile from where Mora was working that night in Melville Hall. Now, the reason that I bring this up is that because there have been multiple discussions of the damage to Mora's car after she had her accident on the 9th, which is going to be coming up in an upcoming episode. The theory is, is that the damage on her car and the damage in the accident that happened on the 9th isn't consistent with the accident that she supposedly had. Well, I don't want to say it that way. We know that she had an accident, but what is kind of in dispute is did she hit a tree or did she hit a snowbank? And um, both of these, the way that the car was damaged was inconsistent with either one, either hitting the tree or the snowbank. But we'll, we'll get to that. But the reason this is important is that it further leads to the theory 
that Mora may have had enough time on her break to run out and get a coffee, a soda, or whatever, and she accidentally hit the student uh, on this coffee run or on this break. Um, because when she gets back to Melville Hall, where she's working, she's so bothered by this that she eventually can't even talk and she is in no state to work, which is when Karen, her supervisor, finds her. Now, remember, this is just theory. There was never any proof that she had anything to do with the accident to Petrit and even Petrit himself. He couldn't recall what kind of car it was that hit him. But yet another theory is that Mora purposefully got into the accident on the 9th. And remember, this is the upcoming accident in order to cover up the damage to her car that may have been caused by the accident with Petrit. So all kinds of things going on here. Now, the next day, uh, we're back on uh, Friday. So the next day, which would now be Saturday, February 7th, Maura's dad, Fred, drove from his home in Weymouth, Massachusetts to Amherst. Now, depending on which direction he took, it was a 105 to 110 mile drive. So about two hours and 20 minutes to two hours and 41 minutes. So quite a bit of distance. As far as we know, there wasn't any mention from Mora to her dad about the previous evening's events when she got so shook up and she had to be escorted back to her dorm room. Now, the reason for her dad, Fred, coming to visit this weekend, according to Fred, was to purchase Mora a new car because hers wasn't running well. Now, Mora's car was a 1996 Saturn sedan uh, it evidently was only running on three cylinders, according to Fred, even though the car was only eight years old. So what I did is I went ahead and I did, I looked up this uh, make and model of vehicle on Edmunds.com. And to be honest, there are plenty of complaints about oil, uh, especially about how much and how quickly it burns, uh, where the oil has to re- be replaced quite often. And there were lots of complaints about the head gaskets, which directly affect the cylinders on a vehicle. So it's the bottom line is it's very possible that Mora's car was in fact having these same issues. Now, the reason I mentioned this at all was that even though Fred went to Amherst that weekend, uh, together with what we understand about $4,000 in cash to purchase a different vehicle for Mora, they never ended up purchasing a car. There were also no accounts from dealerships, according to the missing podcast, that they even went to look for a new vehicle or a different vehicle. So this leads to yet another theory that Mora was somehow involved in the hit and run of Petrit and called to let her dad know. So the next day, her dad came up with cash in hand to purchase another vehicle so that they could get rid of the possible evidence on Mora's Saturn. Now, again, this is totally theory. We have no, we don't know why a car was never purchased that day. We don't know exactly why Fred was there. Although, you know, it does make sense based on what I found about the gas uh, or the oil leakage 
and a Saturn. So very likely that they went shopping, just maybe didn't find exactly what they wanted. Who knows? Now that night, so this is that Saturday, they've already gone out shopping for a car, uh, supposedly shopping for a car. Um, Mora and her dad, along with a friend of Mora's, Kate M., went to dinner at the Amherst Brewing Company in Amherst. Now, evidently during dinner that evening, there was no discussion of having been out looking for a different car that day, which you think would be a topic of conversation, right? Now, another theory that Fred was there at all uh, was that uh, he was with Mora because of Mora's sister. Now, remember, Mora did say my sister to her, her supervisor the night that she was working at Melville Hall and she had to be escorted back to her own dorm room. But why would Fred visit Mora if there was another sister who was in need? Now, along with Fred and Mora and Mora's friend Kate, um, it is theorized that at some point during this dinner, Kate invited Mora to a party. Now, one story is that after dinner was done, Fred wanted to go back to his hotel, the Quality Inn on Russell Street in Hadley. Now, Mora didn't want to drive her car, so Fred said that she could instead use his car, which was a brand new Toyota Corolla. Now, keep in mind, they had just had dinner and probably drinks at the Amherst Brewing Company. Why would Fred allow Mora to drive his brand new car if she had already been drinking? So in this version... Mora then drives and drops off her dad at his uh, motel and then drives back with Kate to the UMass campus. Another version of this story is that Fred first drives the girls to a liquor store to buy alcohol for the party that was happening later at the dorm. So not only has Mora been likely drinking at dinner, but she obviously intends to drink more at the party considering the alcohol her and Kate purchase. Now, Fred, who is mentioned, is staying in a motel. Uh, He's not heading back home that night. Uh, He gets dropped off at his motel, and then Mora and Kate, driving Fred's car, obviously still go back and head to the dorm for the party. The next thing that happens is that around 2.30 or 3 o'clock in the morning of Sunday, the 8th of February... Mora decides she wants to return her dad's car to him that night. Now, he wasn't expecting it until much later that day or the next day, however you want to look at it. And according to a magazine article, Kate was surprised because Mora, she'd been drinking. So nonetheless, Mora told her friends that she was heading back to her dorm room, but instead she took her dad's car and drove to his motel. This is where things start to get a little gray. Um, Some people say that Mora left the party alone. Others say that she left with a guy, but they weren't able to provide a description of him. Now, when Kate is asked about what happened, she has never been able to give any kind of version as to what happened that night. So either Kate was too drunk to know what was happening Um, She couldn't even recall who was at the party or she's holding something back. Now, Maura's friend, Sarah, who was also at this supposed party, has never said anything either. 
And this kind of leads some people to wonder if there was even a party at all. Now, as Mora is driving on Route 9 in Hadley to return her dad's car to him, where he's in Hadley, it's only about four miles away, she hits a guardrail on North Hadley Road and Maple Street. Now, North Hadley Road ends at Maple Street. It's a T intersection where you can only go left or right. Mora, however, hit the guardrail straight ahead, causing about seven dollars to $9,000 worth of damage to Fred's new Toyota. When an officer did arrive, uh, he did write an accident report, but it is unknown if there were any field sobriety tests done. Uh, we do know that there were no charges that were filed. So why wouldn't the officer who responded cite her for drunk driving? Now, this is assuming she was drunk, right? Maybe she wasn't, but she was coming supposedly from a dorm party and she had purchased alcohol earlier in the evening, right? One of the questions too is that her dad didn't even expect to see her until later on that day. So what was the big rush to get the car back to him that night? So what happens is the Toyota is towed and Mora gets a ride supposedly from the tow truck driver to the motel where her dad is staying. Now, this is another area that we're kind of getting into a gray area because some things just don't quite add up. One theory is that Mora had a key to her dad's room and she just let herself in. Now, this was not true. She did not have a key. Another theory is that she knocked on his door and he let her in that night. Now, this is also not true. Another story is that she entered the motel headed to the lobby and fell asleep on the couch in the motel lobby. And the motel worker that night then later lets her into her dad's room. But the thing is, is that Fred says he didn't even know Mora was there until about 10 o'clock the next morning. Now by quote unquote there, I don't know if he means in his room or if he means just at the motel in general. If it was his room and if Fred had thrown the security latch on his door that night, how was Mora then able to enter? How did the worker that night even know that Mora was Fred's daughter? I suppose that he could have looked at her driver's license, but even then, wouldn't he have to call the room and verify it? He wouldn't have just let her in, would he? What we do know is that someone called Mora's boyfriend, Billy, that night at 4.49 a.m. and they called from Fred's phone. So now let's say that Mora was there. Why would she use her dad's phone? Her phone could have died, right? But back then, the amount of items running on your phone, like apps and such, were (laughs) minimal if existent at all. And battery life was well over 24 hours. You know, some phone companies even boast that the phone's battery would last from three days to a week. I mean, can you imagine? Wouldn't that be nice? A week. Maybe she hadn't charged it. Uh, Whatever the reason is, someone, we're assuming it was Mora, made a phone call to her boyfriend, Billy, who was in Oklahoma. Now, at the time when he got the phone call, 
it would have been 3.49 a.m. So let's pause here for a second and just consider this time frame. If her accident occurred at 3.30 in the morning, Mora would have had to wait for the police and then wait for the tow truck to arrive, right? She then would have had to be driven to her dad's motel approximately 10 minutes away. And let's say all of this took maybe an hour. Now, this would put, have put Mora on the couch in the motel at 4.30 in the morning. Yet somehow she's making a phone call from her dad's phone to her boyfriend 19 minutes later. In my opinion, there's no way. There is just no way that she fell asleep on that couch in the motel if she was the one that made the phone call to Billy from Fred's phone. It just doesn't make any sense. Now, if, however, she did actually fall asleep on the couch, then the only person who have called, who could have called Billy would have been Fred because the call came from Fred's phone. There's no reason to believe that Mora would have had her dad's phone. On the other hand, all of this could be completely explainable if Mora got dropped off by the tow truck driver at the motel She then walked up and asked the desk clerk to phone her dad's room and either let him know that she was on her way to his room or he came down to get her. Now, this sounds the most plausible. However, Fred has always said that he didn't even know Mora was there until he woke up the next morning. So how does this all fit in? I know that this is just all speculation, but quite honestly, it's all we have right now. The only person that can speak to any of this is Fred, and we can only go by what he alone has told us. Now, when Maura finally does tell her dad what had happened to his car, Maura was very, very upset. Her dad, Fred, admitted that he too was really upset with her, but that he didn't yell at her. He further said that he didn't have to yell at Mora for her to know that he was extremely upset. He told Mora it was going to be okay, and it wasn't the worst thing in the world. He's actually quoted as saying, quote, if this is the only trouble a kid ever causes, then you're a pretty lucky parent. We're pretty sure that we know that Billy did in fact speak with Mora that night and not Mora's dad. Billy evidently talked with Mora about the accident and she was still very upset about it. But later on, Billy would say that he felt like there was more than just the accident on her mind, but he didn't know what. Now, the reason Mora's boyfriend was in Oklahoma Uh, was because he was an army lieutenant who was stationed at Fort Sill. And just a few weeks earlier, according to one report, Mora had gotten a summer job at a hospital in Oklahoma so that she could be closer to Billy. And in a later interview, Billy would say that they were, quote, engaged to be engaged. As I mentioned earlier, Uh, Mora and Billy met while Mora was at West Point, and they did continue to date after she had left and gone to school at UMass. They would often travel back and forth to see one another, and according to Billy's mom, she already felt as if Mora was her own daughter. So on Sunday the 8th, 
uh, Fred found out from his insurance company that the damage to his car would be covered. So what he did then is he rented a car, he took Mora back to her dorm room, and then Fred headed to Connecticut uh, for a job that he had. Later that Sunday night, about 11.30 at night, Fred calls Mora and he reminds her to pick up the accident forms from the Registry of Motor Vehicles for the incident with his car. Once she did that, he planned to talk with her Monday night at 8 o'clock on the 9th to go over the forms and fill out the accident report. Now, after midnight that same evening, uh, which is now Monday the 9th, uh, she has just talked with her dad, remember, at 11.30 at night. It's now Monday the 9th. Mora searched MapQuest, uh, one of the few places you you could uh, get directions online, and she searched MapQuest to get directions to the Berkshires and Burlington, Vermont. That same morning, Mora finished a homework assignment and sent it in at 3.32 in the morning. Now, there's a few hours that go by and we have no idea what has happened or what's going on within these few hours. All that we know is that at 1 o'clock, 1 p.m. on Monday the 9th, Mora sent an email to her boyfriend and the message said, quote, I love you more, stud. I got your messages, but honestly, I don't feel like talking to much of anyone. I promise to call today, though. Love you, Mora. Now, shortly after sending this email, she then made a phone call to Bartlett, New Hampshire, and she asked about renting a condo at the Atitash Resort. Now, this is a location where her family had gone on vacation in the past. Uh, This phone call lasted three minutes and the owner didn't rent the condo to Mora mainly because it was too short of a notice. Now, Bartlett, New Hampshire, it's about 60 miles away from Mora's location. Shortly after that phone call at 1.13 p.m., Mora's phone records indicate that she called a nursing student friend. Now, this is an assumption, but based on what I've learned so far, she had called her friend Aaron because she wanted to return some clothes that she had borrowed. Now, it's theorized that the clothing she wanted to return were some scrubs, and some say it was a lab coat that she had borrowed from Aaron. Mora told Aaron that she had to be away for a while, and when Aaron asked what it was about, all Mora said was, my sister. Now, Aaron didn't need the clothes right away, so she told Mora not to worry about it, but Mora did end up returning the clothes to Aaron anyway. Mora stopped by, she knocked on Aaron's door, and when there was no answer, Mora just left the bag of clothes at the door. At 1.24 p.m., Mora emailed a supervisor with the nursing school and told them that she would be out of town for a week due to a death in her family and that she would contact them when she returned. Now, the dean of nursing at UMass said that Mora had emailed a professor on Monday indicating that she needed to take time off because of a, quote, family problem and will return to class this week. Now, it's not known if the dean was paraphrasing and just not using the term death in the family, but I highly doubt it. 
Again, there are inconsistencies over what Mora told her professors and others about the reason for her leaving school for a little bit. The problem with all of this is that there was no death in the family. At 2.05 p.m., Mora then calls a telephone number that gives information about hotels and bookings in Stowe, Vermont. And this call lasts about five minutes. What she's actually doing is listening to a recording. Their line had been down that day. And so she was listening to recordings as to what was available. At 2.18 p.m., Mora then calls her boyfriend, Billy, and leaves him a voicemail telling him that they would talk later. This call lasted about a minute. According to Billy's mom, Sharon, the message was something like, quote, I love you, I miss you, I want to talk. Billy had actually given Mora the cell phone as a gift, but it was his mom, Sharon, whose name was on the account, and that's why she has this information. What Mora then does next is she packs her car with clothes, textbooks, and toiletries along with her birth control. She also had a cell phone charger and a travel adapter for her Samsung cell phone. Now, another thing that she packed was her favorite stuffed animal, a monkey that her dad had given her. Now, others say that it was a gift from Billy. I'm not quite sure who gave her this monkey, but nonetheless, she had this this stuffed animal with her. Now, because Mora didn't usually drive her car, uh, given the reports so far, it really wasn't likely that her textbooks would have already been inside the Saturn, uh, which leads you to believe that she intentionally brought them along on her trip, which is an important piece of information. Around 3.30 that Monday afternoon, Mora left the UMass campus in Amherst in her 1996 Saturn, That day, there weren't any classes due to a snowstorm that had rolled through, and she made her way to her destination. In the next episode, we'll discuss what all Maura did the day that she went missing, where the accident happened, who talked with her, and the timeline of events. You'll also discover how shady some characters appear, and we'll have even more mysteries to unpack. My plan here is to get these episodes out to you as quickly as possible so that you don't have to wait a full week, you know, knock on wood. Uh, Be sure, though, that you follow Beach House 34 Podcast on Instagram or Facebook to keep up to date on all of the upcoming episodes so that you can be right there when they're released. So until next time, thank you, thank you, thank you all for listening. I appreciate all of you. You know I do. Thank you. I will talk to you soon.